Hello, I'm Wilson Pruitt, and you are listening to the History of Methodism podcast. Today's episode, Jacob Arminius. Late in his career, John Wesley began publishing a journal he titled The Armenian Magazine. It was named after the Dutch pastor and theologian Jacob Arminius. Wesley didn't have a lot of other journals named after other people, so this point alone solidifies Arminius's influence on Wesley's theology. Still more, for much of the history of Methodism, the doctrine of the church has been described in a hyphenated way as Wesleyan-Armenian. In our own day, Armenianism is often used as a pejorative term, negatively by Calvinists against any non-Calvinists. If predestination is not beautiful to you, you must be an Armenian. Calvinists find this joke very funny. So who was Jacob Arminius? Why did Wesley name a magazine after him? And why do Calvinists despise him so? As we saw in episode 6 on early Reformed theology, the theology of the era was not as monolithic as it is sometimes portrayed. As the historian Stephen Gunter points out, what it meant to be Protestant during Arminius's age is that you had nothing to do with disputes about the finer points of Reformed doctrine. It was about not being Roman Catholic. When Arminius was growing up, no more than one in ten people in the Netherlands openly identified themselves as Protestant, for there was considerable ambivalence about leaving the Roman fold. Arminius was born Jacobus Harmenzun on October 10, 1559, in Udewater, in what would later become the Netherlands. Jacobus Arminius was the Latin name he took upon entering college, a custom of the era. At the time of his birth, the Netherlands was ruled by the Habsburg Philip II of Spain. Philip was the son of Charles V, whom you should remember from our episode about the Counter-Reformation. The Netherlands at that time was divided into 17 provinces and known in the emperor empire as Le Pays de Pardessa, or the land over there. That is why, in English, it is referred to as the Netherlands. Netherlands. This includes all of what is today the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and a few parts of modern France and Germany. In 1566, a revolt began around Calvinist iconoclasm, called the Bildensturm. Protestants began to tear down icons and images of Jesus and Mary. Protestants were not in the majority, but some local nobles, like William of Orange, supported the iconoclasts and used the occasion to foment formal rebellion against the Habsburgs. Open war would continue off and on until the Peace of Westphalia in 1654, which have led some to call the Dutch Rebellion the Eighty-Year War. This context for Arminius's early life is essential because his whole life was filled with revolution. The year after he died in 1609 was the start of the Twelve-Year Truce, the longest period of peace in the conflict. 
Of course, to say the Netherlands was in a state of war was not to say that there were battles every day, but that two governments laid claim to the same land. Philip and his heirs saw it all as Habsburg land. The Dutch did not and began to develop systems of local government. Udevater, Arminius's birthplace, did not declare as Protestant, which would make them in open defiance of the Habsburgs, until 1574, when he was as a teenager. Arminius went to school, supported by his mother's family, and later studied in Leiden, Geneva, and Basel, with a short period in Padua. Theodore Beza was still living during Arminius's student years, although the faculty and city were not unified in support of Beza's more hardline positions on predestination. Karl Bangs, the eminent biographer of Arminius, even called Geneva, ironically, the seedbed of Dutch Armenianism. A major intellectual influence at this time across Europe and with Arminius in particular were the logical writings of Peter Ramus. Ramus had written a critique of Aristotle that attempted to simplify logic by reducing the number of possible arguments and to focus on the practical ends of each argument. Many of his future opponents in Amsterdam and Leiden were staunch Aristotelians, which added to their discomfort at Arminius's doctrinal claims. In 1587, Arminius returned to his homeland and after a short period was approved and ordained as a pastor in Amsterdam. There were, at this time, five pastors who rotated assignments during the year. Already in 1592, a complaint was made against Arminius that he was being Pelagian and not adhering to the Belgic Confession and to the Heidelberg Catechism, the two principal doctrinal guides for the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. This argument was brought before the weekly meeting of the Consistory of Amsterdam, a church council of sorts that ruled ecclesial affairs for the city. Though eventually, the Consistory ruled that no heresy had taken place, the conflict between Arminius and the stricter Reformed ministers and members of the consistory was not to end swiftly or smoothly. The burgomasters were the civilian authority of the area. All of this was new and in flux due to the context of open revolt against the Habsburgs. While Arminius is mostly known today for advocating free will over predestination, perhaps an even larger point of contention in his lifetime was the relationship between church and state. William of Orange favored a broad interpretation of church authority, which led to some independence for the burghers and a limitation to the authority of the consistory. William's younger brother, Maurice, who came into power in 1585, after William's death a year earlier, supported a more narrow interpretation of church authority, which gave more authority to the consistory over all matters. We shall see the culmination of this in the Synod of Dort in 1618, but there is still a long way to go. In 1603, Arminius received a petition in Leiden at the university. Leiden had been freed from the Habsburgs in 1574 by William of Orange, and almost immediately they decided to begin a Protestant university there, the first in the country. 
Thus, Arminius' appointment was eminent and influential in a fledgling country that saw fit to build schools amidst a war. In 1605, he was elected as the Rector Magnificas, chief academic officer of the university. It was in that same year that the final round of charges were put forward against Arminius and his theology. The dispute quickly became more than academic when Arminius was visited by ministers from all over the country. The dispute concerned predestination and the divine foreknowledge of God, with the more rigid Calvinists saying that Arminius is heretically preaching and teaching in contradiction to the Belgic Confession, Article 16, by using the language of contingency around election. Just as in 1592... Arminius responded directly to every charge, refuting them strongly enough that the governors of the university eventually saw the matter settled. Followers of Arminius were from then on referred to as remonstrants from the Latin remonstrare, which means to demonstrate. In that, Arminius demonstrated his evidence in responding to the accusations. Arminius never wrote against predestination as a concept, as some later Armenians would. Instead, he spoke and wrote that his accusers had distorted scripture in their attempts to hold true to a Bayesian interpretation of the Belgic Confession. In 1606, as a way to end dispute, Arminius called for a national synod convened by the magistrates and not the church leaders. He did so theologically, connecting the authority of the magistrates with divine mandate and, quote, ancient Jewish practice, which was afterwards taken by the Christian church and was continued nearly to the ninth century until the Roman pontiff began through tyranny to arrogate this authority to himself. Arminius's position here on church authority, known as Erastianism, is impossible to disentangle from his theology. Erastianism sees issues of state authority connected to all the other theological concerns of the time. The Dutch Republic is not even 50 years old, and they are still in an active level of revolt, with the threat of Habsburg invasion being constant. How should we govern ourselves? This is a question that is never separate from who God is and how we are to understand God's sovereignty. Calvin's own view on church government came as much from the patriarch Jerome as the scriptures themselves, as can be seen in Calvin's section on ancient church government in the Institutes Book 4, as well as the last chapter of the entire Institutes, which is dedicated to civil government. The final dispute of Arminius' short life took place on October 31st, 1608, in a speech before the States of Holland that would later be published as the Declaration of Sentiments. In it, he argues that double predestination, which is the doctrine that God condemns some people to hell and graces others to heaven, is incompatible with the nature of God. He goes on on this point, and I quote, I reject this predestination for the following reasons. One, because it is not the foundation of Christianity, of salvation, or of its certainty. 
2. For predestination is not the decree of God by which Christ is appointed by God and to be the Savior, the head, and the foundation of those who will be made heirs of salvation, yet that decree is the only foundation of Christianity. 3. For the doctrine of this predestination is not that doctrine by which through faith we as living stones are built up into Christ, the only quarterstone, and are inserted into him as the members of the body are joined to their head. He continues discussing how it is not the foundation of salvation. 1. For this predestination is not that decree of the good pleasure of God in Christ Jesus on which alone our salvation rests and demands. 2. The doctrine of this predestination is not the foundation of salvation, for it is not, quote, the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, because through it the righteousness of God is not revealed from faith to faith. Three, nor is it the foundation of the certainty of salvation, for that is dependent upon this decree. They who believe shall be saved. I believe, therefore, I shall be saved. But the doctrine of this predestination embraces within itself neither the first nor the second member of the syllogism. This is likewise confessed by some persons in these words. We do not wish to state that the knowledge of this predestination is the foundation of Christianity or of salvation, or that it is necessary to salvation in the same manner as the doctrine of the gospel. During this synod, matters of state absorbed the debate between the remonstrance and the counter-remonstrance, when Prince Maurice threw his weight threw his weight behind the Contras and condemned Arminius as heretical and the Armenian members of state as well. Hugo Grotius, one of the founders of modern political theory and international law, was in the Armenian faction during the dispute and was arrested and later exiled. When we look to Arminius's influence over Wesley, the major one is, is his advocacy for free grace the free grace of God without limit, and his intellectual defense of this position in the face of Calvinist rigidity around the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. Wesley saw in Arminius someone who advocated for the doctrines of original sin and justification by grace all the way down, but who did not need the stark predestinarian view of the Calvinists. The other major point of influence for Wesley was in disposition. Arminius held up scripture over interpretations of reformed creeds and saw in each dispute an opportunity to return to the Bible without a systematic shorthand. Wesley did this as well. Wesley saw himself as a homo unius libri, a man of one book, and when issues arose, he always returned to the one book into questions about it, not to a modern confession, not even to the 39 articles. But don't take my words for it. For our next episode, we're going to have a reading of a pamphlet by John Wesley titled, The Question, What is an Armenian? Answered by a lover of free grace. Next time on the History of Methodism. (laughs) 